That song, we've, we've sung it together before. And I was just thinking as I looked at the faces of the people in the choir and thought about our congregation over the years, and that's not just a song. God has proven himself faithful, and many of you have traveled through really rough things together and have seen God do it. So thank you for ministering to us. One of the blessings of being part of a body is the collective memories we have together and how it draws us together and our hearts together. This is especially exciting Sunday as people are uh, getting back after being away for a summer and others are relocating uh, to the area. And so a lot of, of guests or friends back uh, today, and there will be even more next week. So I want you to look around at where the empty seats are. And let's think through as a congregation how difficult it would be to get to them, all right? So next Sunday morning, we're going to really have to be very intentional about this um, and, and looking out for people that need seating. And um, as much as we love the aisles, and that's just easier that way to, to fill in so that people can find seats, um, you know, look, look for people that look like they're lost, because if you can't find a seat, you are, um, and, and see if you can reach out. Now, if you're new yourself today, we'll give you a break next week, but those that have been here for a while, you can, you can step up to that, and let's uh, really help folk out. It's a great problem. It's not actually a problem. It's a great challenge uh, to have uh, to find seating. Well, we have been working through the Gospel of John, and we just finished out last week John chapter 6, and there's actually six months of ministry in Galilee between the events of John 6 and the events of John 7. At the end of John 6, we saw many disciples of Jesus turning away and following Him no more. And even among those who stayed there were still unbelievers. Prime example was Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. But what Jesus faced was not just passive rejection. He and his ministry sparked active hatred, bent on destroying him. The gospel invitation divides between those who want Jesus and those who don't. But sometimes we forget that the gospel of Jesus provokes hostility as well. And we can find ourselves surprised by it and intimidated by it. And it's important that we remember that antagonism toward Christ and the gospel started when Jesus was still on earth preaching and teaching and doing miracles and doing everything perfectly. I mean, we make plenty of mistakes and we, you know, garner some of the pushback that we get. We you know, it's our own fault. But think about it. Jesus was ministering absolutely perfectly, and yet he was hated enough that people wanted to kill him. So John begins to focus more and more on this mounting opposition to Jesus and to his ministry. It is a necessary lead-up to the fulfillment of Jesus' mission on the cross, and it's to be expected 
by anyone who follows the Lord Jesus and makes him known to the world. The prophets talked about it. Isaiah 53 prophesied as much. Isaiah starts, 53 starts this way, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then a few verses later, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So read with me, follow with me as I read from John 7 verses 1 through 13 for our study this morning. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not fully yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. I borrowed words from Isaiah for the title of our message this morning, Despised and Rejected speaking of Jesus. In verse 1, and then explained in verse 7, we see the response of murder, murder, the desire to murder Him. In verses 2 through 10, we see misunderstanding, and then in verses 11 through 13, controversy. So, first, consider with me that, that one of the responses to Jesus, and really what dominates this passage, is the response of desiring to murder him. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus spent much of his time in Galilee away from Judea. He traveled throughout the region of Galilee from Tyre and Sidon in the northwest uh, to Decapolis region in the southeast. He was teaching. He was healing. He was casting out demons. He also spent a significant amount of time just training his 12 disciples. He stayed away from Judea, where the power of the Jewish leaders was more concentrated. They were seeking to kill him already and, and showed up. Even in Galilee, they would show up to heckle him and to persecute him. So the question is, you know, why do they hate him so much? I mean, you know, to hate somebody enough to kill that person is pretty over the top. Well, we've seen their interchange with him in John chapter 5. They, they balked at his healing on the Sabbath day. It violated their tradition regarding how you keep the Sabbath. They, they refused to believe his identity to be God the Son doing the works that God the Father had assigned to him. 
In John 5, we read these words, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. They refused to accept Jesus as the Son of Man, the judge of the world. They refused to receive Him as the promised Messiah, the Savior King, anointed by God to redeem His people. They refused, despite His miracles, despite His powerful teaching like no one had ever heard before, despite what the Old Testament Scriptures testified about Him. In fact, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe Me. And they prided themselves in believing Moses. But during the conversation with his brothers about going to Jerusalem for the feast, he reveals a deeper and darker reason that they hated him. In John 7 and verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Hatred is the heart behind murder. It's what makes killing murder is hatred. What the Jews hated most about Jesus was not even His doing works on the Sabbath day and not even His claims. It was His exposing how evil they actually were because they prided themselves in good works, all kinds of outward adherence to ceremonies and codes that separated them from the rabble and established themselves as better than other people. Jesus tore through that facade and revealed their hearts of darkness. They did not love God. They did not love their neighbor, the two greatest commandments, and they hated Jesus, the God-man. Will you notice what Jesus calls these religious enemies? He calls them the world, the world. That is the last description that they would ever use for themselves. They exalted themselves as separated from the world. That's what Pharisee means. They sought to establish that they were holy by all that they disassociated from. And Paul, Paul actually describes this version of false religion this way in Colossians 2. Therefore, As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Live your walkabout life in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. That's the body of truth that is Christianity. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits or principles, really a better translation, of the world and not according to Christ. In verse 16, you know, he's not just saying don't, don't conform to this, but he's, he's saying don't even be intimidated by it. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's, he's referring to things that God had set up in the Old Testament that were designed to look uh, forward to Christ. These men had made that the, the sum total of their religion. 
Make sure you're at the right place at the right time, that you do things a certain way, and that proves that you are holy. It was all ceremonial. It was all code. In verse 20, it goes on, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits or principles, rudiments of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used? according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism that's punishing the body in order to make spiritual advance, which doesn't work, asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These Jewish leaders, in love with themselves, in love with their power, in love with their standing and their tradition, in love with their superiority over other people, which was self-deception, these Jewish leaders were fundamentally evil, worldly men. Deeply religious, yes, but evil to the core. That's why they hated Jesus, and that's why they wanted to destroy Him. He saw through their whitewashed religion to their corrupt hearts. So, don't confuse true Christianity with self-righteous religion. The practitioners of this kind of man-made religion hated Jesus and worked like mad to kill Him In fact, the bulk of the persecution that the first century church endured came not from pagans. That was late in the century. Came not from pagans, but from religious people who claimed to be following biblical religion. I think it's really important for us to understand this when we try to live for Christ. Their tribe lives on. Proud, hateful, and quick to mistreat genuinely godly people people. So, don't be surprised if you experience persecution from religious people every bit as much, if not more, than from secular people. I think a lot of times we we really worry about the secular persecution. We worry about it a lot. We follow the news and like, oh, what's going to happen if they pass this law and that law? Look, most of the persecution you are likely to endure is going to come from religious people who think they're serving God by mistreating you. That's what the New Testament would teach us. That's what the history, quite frankly, of the church would teach us. If they behaved this way when Jesus was on earth, living a perfect life before them, how do you think such religionists will respond to truly spirit-led, born-again Christians who follow Him? It's not so much the faults of Christians that evoke the world's hatred as it is what they teach and how they live that is like Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, the more you become like Him, the more those that are actually worldly will hate you. That's what the New Testament would teach us. So, what forms of worldly Christianity have you seen that make much of man-made tradition and trends and make little of Christ? 
You know, and as you travel and as you relocate and uh, as you look for a good home church, listen to, to how much people are actually talking about Jesus, how much they're talking about Christ, how much it, there's a gospel motivation to what they do versus just feathering their own nest, protecting their own turf, and, and exalting themselves. Using only the New Testament as your guide, what does worldliness look like? We actually did this exercise together over a decade ago. But, so this is like homework. I know, you know, it's the beginning of the school year. Let's give a little homework. What does worldliness look like? And what does spirit-filled godliness look like? Use your concordance. Not what you've always heard. And, and find out what the Bible describes as worldliness and, and what it actually looks like. Because it's very different from the normal talk that you hear. Which... I would submit is worldly in its position. Third, where have you seen people very particular about religious practices who nonetheless seem to have no pangs of conscience about destroying other people verbally or physically? That's actually a mark of false religion, and and you know it. You know it when we're talking about Hinduism or Islam, or, or some other religion that, where you hear in the news about violence. But recognize that slander and destruction of people, that doesn't just live in that kind of false religion. It can live in religion that pawns itself off as Christianity. And it's not. It is not Christian, it is not biblical, it is not holy, it is evil. It's just the world. So, murder was the first response to Jesus. And then we see in verses 10, 2 through 10, Jesus' conversation with his brothers, we see misunderstanding. Now, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Sobering words. His own brothers did not believe, at least not yet. That will change after the resurrection as the book of James and the book of Jude demonstrate. Both sons of Mary and Joseph and therefore half-brothers of Jesus. Of course, Jesus was virgin-born, so I call him half-brother. They did not believe in him for who he was, and they didn't really understand his mission on the earth. They're they're still thinking in purely secular terms of how to increase exposure and popularity. Today, we call it marketing. Their notion of who the Messiah was to be was largely political, not spiritual. So, Jesus answers them in verse 6. He said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The mission of Jesus 
to offer himself for the sins of his people according to the will of God the Father had a specific timetable to it. The will of God is not just what to do, but when to do it. This is true of Christ's mission. This will be true of your own life and mine. Jesus came in the fullness of time, and He would set in motion the events leading to His crucifixion in exact correspondence to the Father's predetermined timing. After many references to Jesus' time not having come, He enters the week of His cross-centered objective, and He says in John 12, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's attaching the, his glorification to his crucifixion because it's his death on the cross that is going to win the victory over sin and redeem his people. This is right after Jesus' triumphal entry, which alarmed the Jewish leadership and pushed them to go ahead with their plans to murder him sooner rather than later. In verse 27 of John 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. In John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And then finally, in his high priestly prayer, in John 17, he starts out with these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given to him. So in chapter 7, where we're studying today, Jesus chose to go up privately to the fall feast, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles, it looked forward to the millennial reign. It also looked back to God's provision for them in the wilderness. It was one of the three required feasts for Jewish males to attend. There was Passover in the spring, also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There was the Feast of Weeks, which we know as Pentecost. It was the beginning of harvest. And then there was the Feast of Booths. He would end up publicly teaching but he avoided premature arrest because it was not time for him to be offered as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People still confuse the central mission of Jesus. They want to remember Jesus as merely a teacher or a prophet or somebody who just taught everyone to be nice to everybody. They forget how his teaching overturned the status quo and how it changed hearts. They forget how deeply he was hated. They forget, that, they forget the redemptive reason that he came. And that's why when Jesus instituted the Lord's table, he says, do this in remembrance of me. My life is a cross-centered life. My mission requires dying and rising again. Don't ever forget it until I come back and we eat again in the kingdom. It's very easy to think of Christianity in terms of buildings and budgets and attendance. 
to make our goals political influence and financial success. But Jesus came to die for our sins, to offer forgiveness and grant eternal life to those who believe, to change people person by person from the inside out through the new birth. The kingdom will come. Now is the time for the cross. All who want to be his disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. This gospel centrality must drive our efforts and our timetables, just as it did his. So what are some ways you can keep your focus on mission this year? The mission that matters to Christ and should matter to his followers. How can you keep from getting distracted on things that don't matter nearly as much? And, and related to that, what tends to interfere with your staying on mission? What, what draws your mind and your heart away? And, and what are some ways you can stay sensitive, not only to what, what God wants you to do, but when? I think we struggle maybe as much with the when as we do with the what. Because it, I don't know about you, but it seems like God's always taken longer than I want him to take. Okay, um, taking longer for the pain to end, taking longer for the victory to come, and, and to just be able to lean into his will and the way he does things uh, as perfect in, in everything, the what and the when. The third response we see to Jesus is that of controversy. In verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there were, was much muttering about him among the people. What some said, while some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This murderous hatred of Jesus among the Jewish movers and shakers pervades the atmosphere of Jerusalem. People dare not even speak openly about their views of Jesus lest they get in trouble with those in power. So we need to understand that the, the person and the teachings of Jesus do not conform to prevailing views of religion or of culture. They cut through them. They naturally provoke controversy. Genuine Christianity cannot bow to the spirit of the times, be it tradition or trend. And when you refuse to support what is contrary to biblical truth, especially if it's very popular, you will pay the price. You have to expect to, do, to pay the price. That's just the nature of it. So, you know, all this... Uh, I'll just, let's just call it what it is. All this cowardice of, of just going with whatever the prevailing views are and then calling it Christianity is, is just a lie. Truth is truth. And, and it's going to cut through the fashion. Christianity was never in step with the times, in any time. You know, sometimes we think because certain eras of revival or whatever that it was just like, oh, it was easy to be a Christian during that era. It's just not true. It was always countercultural, both religious and secular. I mean, we would love to live our lives in peace 
And we're actually commanded to pray that way for the sake of advancing the gospel among people everywhere. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, and this, by the way, guides why we pray the way we do on Sunday mornings. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why? Why do we want that? Just because we want an easy life? No, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We, we, we want to live in a world where, where we can grease the gospel wheels, where we can get the gospel to as many people as possible. Even though we seek to be peacemakers, we will suffer mistreatment just as Jesus and the apostles forewarned. We, we mustn't be fretful about that or, or intimidated, and we dare not cave to the falsehood, to falsehood just to be liked. There's no point in gaining the world if it means losing your soul. And Jesus warned his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. When you stay true to Jesus and true to the gospel and you're, you're bold in that witness and you live that out, you will find others whose hearts also are responding to the same truth. They'll become your brothers and sisters. They'll become, become really closer even sometimes than your biological brothers and sisters. And, and, and you'll find that your heart, your kindred spirit, you'll find those people. They'll find you. But those who have the world will not take to you that way. So what kinds of conflict or controversy keep you from sharing your faith openly? And what fears stand in the way of your open devotion to Jesus? And what commands and promises from Jesus and the apostles could encourage you to be bold and courageous in your witness? And by that, I don't just mean with what you say, but I mean it's just how you live. Like, like to be, make it very clear whom you're serving, very clear what you believe, very clear what you're giving your life to, and not backing off of that, and, and, and being bold about that, and then, and then let the chips fall where they may. If Jesus faced this kind of rejection, this kind of hatred. If, if, if you and I are following Jesus, we're going to experience that too, to some degree. We may face murder, depending on where you live and when you live, and, and it, it can come here as well. You may face misunderstanding. You will face misunderstanding, and, and there will be controversy that swirls around, but it's okay because true disciples of Jesus are willing to take up this cross and follow him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, despised and rejected of men, and yet he is Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and
Lord, we would, we would love in our own flesh, we would, we would love it if following Jesus meant that all our problems end and that everybody likes us now. Lord, we know that there'll be love among the family of God, and we know that we are loved by God with a steadfast love that's forever, but we know that we are in hostile territory where the prince of the power of the air has deceived people and blinded them to the gospel and, and blinded them to the truth of Jesus, and, and therefore they're going to respond in a way that's, that's hostile. But, Lord, we know that even among them, those that respond in a hostile way, some of them will end up trusting in Jesus, people like the Apostle Paul. And, Lord, we rejoice in that. We know that the power of the gospel is great, and we know that you will call out your own. And we pray that we might live boldly and courageously for the sake of Jesus and the gospel wherever we are. Lord, help us, help us not just conform to worldliness, however it shows itself, religious or secular. But Lord, help us be clear in our gospel witness and clear that we're following Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.